Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to another episode of Best of Health Radio brought to you by Bar Regis Ask the PA. Remember, it's your health, your business. I have three amazing people in studio with me today, and we're going to cover a topic that's really dear to my heart, dementia, and we need to get the word out about dementia. We have three people from very diverse backgrounds. They're going to share their stories, their passions, and their love about the subject of dementia and Alzheimer's. We have in studio today, Carol Becker. She's uh, with Universal Resources. We have Ben Reedhead. He's an assistant professor at ASU's Banner's Neurogenerative Disease Research Center. And we have Jan Doherty, who is a special programs consultant with Banner Alzheimer Institute. And she has a special passion for the city of Tempe. So let's get started. First of all, Ben, I want you to tell me a little bit about how you got to ASU and uh, about what's going on with the research these days in Alzheimer's. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, firstly, thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, it's great to be a part of this discussion. So, yeah, my name is Ben. I work as a as a research professor at ASU Banner NDRC, and there my job is really to combine computers with big data in a bunch of different interesting ways, with the goal of trying to find new opportunities for therapies and treatments in Alzheimer's disease. That's awesome. And Carol, tell me a little bit about your business. What I do is help the person with dementia keep their personhood, respecting who they've been and who they are now, helping them keep the resources, the abilities they still have. It's kind of a use it or lose it thing like most of our abilities. And help the caregiver learn how to do that and manage their stress. That's great. And Jen, tell tell us where you fit in the dementia piece. Well, I been a nurse for many years mm-hmm. and with a focus in this area for a couple decades. And I've had the privilege of working with the Banner Alzheimer's Institute since their inception in 2006, where our leader, Dr. Eric Ryman, uh, and the board who helped put this institute together to end Alzheimer's disease before another generation is lost, also had a real concern about setting a new standard of care of what should look like for people who are living with dementia and their family caregivers. And so um, I uh, have had the privilege of leading a team over the last uh, 11 years and crafting some really novel programs to help people live well with dementia, something that um, people don't think about when they think about dementia. They think about doom and gloom, and they don't think about the possibilities that lie within. And yet it's a tough illness, uh, even living well with it, and it poses many challenges to families. And so, you know, I'm proud that I've been part of an amazing team and community who've come together to look at solutions on how do we support family caregivers um, in a long uh, disease state to feel successful and valued for what they do. I was at one of her presentations at at, uh, Friendship Village, Mm -hmm. and the people in there were just amazed at the information she brought to them, and there were a lot of questions, and so that was great. Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, it, so we've been uh, starting a new program as part of our work in dementia-friendly Tempe, and it's called Dementia Friends. It actually comes from the United Kingdom, and it's really a grassroots awareness campaign. Uh, there's so much stigma around uh, getting a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. It's amazing how friends and families will literally abandon the person and um, their family members, and it shouldn't have to be that way, and I think it's because uh, fear and misunderstanding 
understanding strikes a lot of people in that way. And so these dementia friends sessions, which are an hour uh, teaching people kind of what changes are normal with aging and, and kind of what's not so normal. And when you recognize someone who is struggling, how can you befriend them, whether you're in the grocery store, whether it's your neighbor, whether you're in the bank, wherever that might be in your faith community. And you know what, um, Carol, as I've enjoyed with these presentations is how participants come up to me and say, you know, I'm living with early stage Alzheimer's disease and I feel so much better after hearing this. Or I brought my husband today because he was really fearful of me having this illness and now he feels like it's going to be okay. So I think just this idea that we can normalize that, you know, you're still an individual. You can have a good quality of life. We can help you be successful. You shouldn't have to be alone and isolated. It's really empowering. So let's back up a few steps here. I'm a primary care provider and I have a patient who comes in. Let's talk about a little bit about the symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's. What are the symptoms and what really mimic those symptoms and what aren't. Tell us about that, Carol. Well, one of the things I heard was, yes, you can forget where your car keys are, but if you're looking for your car keys and you pick up a hat, you've picked up the wrong thing and you don't recognize it. Right. Okay. It's a little bit of confusion there, right? Confusion. Yeah. And then there are visual changes. And one of the things that Jan does is gives us an opportunity to experience that with special glasses that show you what it looks like to have those visual problems. That was really interesting because I saw something on the news just last week about there's a, a mobile unit that goes around and people actually can live in the world of someone diagnosed with with Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's called the Virtual Dementia Tour and mm-hmm. uh, actually started in the United Kingdom uh, probably over 10 years ago. What it mimics is um, just the sense of overwhelm. So Really, the, the the visual change aren't so much vision as brain changes. Mm-hmm. It's just we say the eyes are the camera to your brain, but your brain develops the film, and the film developer isn't working <laughs> so well anymore. So it misinterprets often what it's seeing or how to use uh, that portion of the brain. And so they create a sense of overwhelm and frustration mm-hmm. through this virtual dementia tour, which is really meant to sensitize us to say, slow down. Right. This is the life of this person. And how is it you can be more present and patient and empathetic? Because often without knowing, we press people to do things that they're unable to do. So I think really it's the sum of the whole that uh, this virtual dementia tour provides a really unique opportunity. In fact, our Tempe firefighters uh, have been going through it as a way so that they can be sensitive because, you know, these medics walk in and, you know, they've just responded maybe to an auto accident. Lord knows the traumatic things they have to do or a fire. And now they're walking into the world of a person with dementia and they want to move fast. Mm -hmm. And this is a reminder that in front of me is a person who could be profoundly confused can't really understand the words that I'm saying. And yet, boy, they understand my body language and my rushing and we're likely to see agitation. So it's really interesting how this um, tour is being used. I'm glad you brought that up, Carol. So uh, Ben, I was curious, tell us a little bit about your research and what you're finding. Sure. So it's my job to think about something called network biology. That's, That's kind of where I spend most of my day. And network biology is, it's a relatively recent area, but really what it is, it's, it's a way of looking across complex systems and biological systems where that you've got many things that are interacting together and that all might be relevant in, in creating a certain outcome, for instance, Alzheimer's disease. 
And it's a really systematic way of looking across thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of different things at once and trying to understand what are the key relationships that tell you what you need to know about why a system or why a person is, is having trouble with a disease. And so what this means is I, I spend a lot of my day working with uh, molecular data, like genetics and genomics data collected from all sorts of different patient cohorts around, around the world and around the U.S., and really trying to take a really systematic approach to, to building up these causal networks where we, can, where we can build these networks that can ideally uh, capture key information that tells us what genes are driving other genes and what genes are driving proteins and what are the networks that, uh, that associate with clinically important features. And then trying to take that and distill some lessons from these networks and trying to understand what are really the, the critical drivers of disease. So all of this with a goal of being able to use these insights that we learn from the networks to identify new therapies and new treatments and trying to identify new biomarkers that can tell us, um, can, can help us guide patients thinking and knowing how they, they may be at risk or not at risk for a disease or how they might progress, what treatments they might respond to. And so that, that's, kind of, that's kind of the broad area that, that the broad set of tools mm-hmm. that, that I bring. I can tell you about some of the specific projects that we're working on in the NDRC at the moment that, that I think are quite exciting. You know, one of them is, is some efforts that we're doing at the moment to build what I think will be the world's biggest molecular atlas looking across all different brain regions in people with and without Alzheimer's disease, trying to look down at the level of a single cell and a single right. cell type. You know, so within your brain, it's really it's, it's a universe of complexity. You've got 100 billion neurons all interacting right. together and each neuron is connected to 10,000 other neurons and trillions of synapses, you know, where the neurons connect together. And all of this is embedded in this really rich three-dimensional structure. You've got all these supportive cells that are, um, that, are, that are critical for understanding how neurons, you know, which are the main processing unit in the brain, how they do their job. And so what we're really trying to do is create an atlas that the research community can use to understand what are the, what are the gene expression changes that happen down at the level of the single cell, across different brain regions and across different patient populations so we can really kind of get at the heart of the disease and see it kind of with a level of focus and a level of precision that we've never been able to do before. And so not only at the level of diagnosis, but as progression as well? Exactly, yeah. So one of the things that we think is really important to model is to have all sorts of different patient control groups that we Mm -hmm. can, you know, at various stages of, of progression of the disease. So you know, there's, there's, there's different ways you can look at it, but, you know, you have people that are cognitively normal and also neuropathologically normal, but then you also have people that appear to be resilient in some way where they may actually have some pretty significant neuropathology, but cognitively they're, they're absolutely normal. And then right. right through to a spectrum where someone might have some mild memory loss, right through to kind of full-blown clinical Alzheimer's disease. And really, we, we want to be mapping at all of these stages and understanding what it is that's switching. The, the, the changes that happen at that cellular level. Exactly. And by that, we can come up with better treatment plans and better ways to help people live day to day with Alzheimer's and dementia, correct? Yeah, this is, yeah, this yeah. is certainly the hope. Can I have so, a question? Yeah. I have been reading that REM sleep, during REM sleep, acetylcholine goes into the brain and cleans up the tangles, right? Is, is that being supported by the research that you're seeing? I have, um, so I'm not an expert in that area, but I have seen some of the research and 
yeah, it really emphasizes the importance of getting, you know, regularly getting 80, eight hours of sleep a night, especially after the age of about 40. It's fascinating, actually. As, as, someone, as someone goes into, I think it's deep-based sleep, you can actually see the brain contract or shrink in size. And throughout these different phases of sleep, you know, like you say, this, this kind of cellular junk gets broken down. And then it goes through this phase where the brain contracts and expels this kind of cellular detritus into, into the lymphatic system where it gets expelled from the brain. So, it, yeah, get your eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck as we get older, right? <laughs> I don't know about you guys. But the other yeah, question I have, too, is, is that, you know, um, not only the benefits of uh, sleep, but also you have the benefits of diet, exercise, and, you know, in relationship to um, people developing Alzheimer's and dementia, we have concussion syndrome, and we also have, you know, chronic inflammation in the body. And we're learning more and more about that chronic inflammation and how it has an effect medically on everything from, you know, just gut health to brain health. And there's actually a doctor out there, his name's Dr. Perlmutter. He's a neurologist out of Naples who has a huge blog about brain health and it's called grain brain and how you avoid all of that. And if you do that, you know, there's a less risk for, you know, Alzheimer's dementia. And he's done this study because of his, of his, his father, I believe had Alzheimer's. I, you nodded. So you I know do a little not, bit about I, yeah, I don't know about that, but I know about grain brain. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of makes me think about how grandma really knew best, didn't she? You know, eat your vegetables and your fruit. Exactly. And go farm. outside and play, meaning, you know, get some exercise, the importance of a good night's sleep. And I think why I don't, think that lifestyle alone will be enough to prevent Alzheimer's disease. It's certainly, um, I think there's growing evidence with more robust studies showing that lifestyle certainly is an important factor and at least maybe delaying it even by a few years, which is important while um, the work that Ben and his colleagues are doing are, are trying to really create new opportunities and new studies with, you know, pharma to look at, are there going to be other ways that, you know, a vaccine or something might, in addition, be helpful, you know, because it's the whole combo of genetics and lifestyle, isn't it, to that kind of sum up whether, how great our risk becomes potentially as we age. Absolutely. Absolutely. So go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say, you know, as, as we see with all complex, chronic, common diseases like Alzheimer's, there's no real smoking gun. There's no single cause. There's no single gene that's necessary and sufficient for you to get the disease. There's no single thing you can do that will guarantee you do or don't get it. As far as we know, it's really more a kind of a cloud of things that you try and push in a, in a, in a protective direction. What a cure might look like, I think it's really unlikely that it's going to be any single intervention. It's going to be just a really principled set of steps that a person can take, and it's probably going to have to be quite personalized, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you think about um, where we are today and what we have learned about Alzheimer's through the years, it just gets uh, amazing to me that um, we don't have better treatments, better cures. I mean, in, in the allopathic world, we have Aricept and a few medications. <laughs> and as a practitioner, you know, we wish there was more resources out there available. <laughs> but what's cool about the three of you, there are resources. For example, like Jan, tell us about a little bit more about what the city of Tempe is doing. Well, 
You know, through this wonderful collaborative that we've created with the city of Tempe and Banner Alzheimer's Institute serving as what they call the champion organization, we had the opportunity to really look as a city, how could we come together and better support citizens living here who are living with dementia as well as their family members. And um, many people might not be aware, although um, you know, our mayor, Mark Mitchell, has shared quite widely that his mom is living with Alzheimer's disease. And so I think as he learned of this work, he was really interested because he was able, he and his father, to reach out and sister to find resources to learn how they could better cope and care for themselves and give the right care for his mom. And so he was very passionate about how can he use his office to help influence a way that other Tempe residents could have this same access. And so over the past two years, we've put together just an amazing group of community residents and volunteers from a variety of organizations. And one of the things I think that's been most significant that people can actually touch and feel is we started a memory cafe two years ago at the Tempe Library. It meets every Monday morning from 9 to uh, 11.30. Just last week, we had 50 people attend. So this is a forum for people with memory loss and their Mm -hmm. family members to come together. Because one of the things that we're very well aware of is social isolation sets in very early for people living with, uh, with these conditions. And as they isolate, so does their family member. And so for the first half hour that folks come to the Memory Cafe, they sit around and drink coffee because we're trying to normalize life, right? This is, this is how we live life is over for a cup of coffee or cup of tea if you're in England. Then about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, the, the, the groups break into two. So we have an engagement program for people with dementia. So as, as Carol says, her interest is really in promoting uh, personhood and the sense of self and mastery. That's what this is all about over discussion groups or arts or whatever the, the particular engagement might be. And as importantly, we have a, a group just for our care partners that's facilitated uh, by a wonderful woman, Susie, who actually is a spouse whose husband had early onset Alzheimer's disease, which is in many ways even more challenging to, you know, in the midst of career and life that this disease strikes. So she has really created a a wonderful forum to provide education and support, so much so that there's now a community with a community that this group of folks go to lunch together and they get together at each other's homes together, right? Because Living with these conditions requires that things are going to change. And we do find new friendships in our lives, don't we? Surrounded by things that happen to us, even tragic things, come some of the most uh, important friendships that are found. Absolutely. Hey, Carol, tell us a little bit more about your practice. Well, I got interested in this because in 85, I, I was in a coma, encephalitis, viral encephalitis. And when I came out of the coma, there were things that I knew I used to know and I didn't know. And it was terrifying. I couldn't remember how to tie my shoelaces. I couldn't remember how to use a towel to to dry my hair. And some of my vocabulary was wrong. So I thought, being an engineer, I said, okay, how am I going to get my vocabulary back? What's the fastest way? And I decided crossword puzzles would expose me to the largest number of words quickly. And so I'm addicted to crossword puzzles. Good for you. Okay. So I I knew that because of my own experience of loss and fear and anxiety, that I could empathize with the folks that I'm helping. And that might make it easier for them to share with me what they're experiencing. Tell me a little bit about the hypnosis. About what? Hypnosis. Oh, hypnosis. Well, what we know is sometimes while the uh, conscious brain is lost and confused, 
the subconscious mind can listen and understand. I know I have one client whose wife says can't talk. She, he has aphasia, but at night he chatters like yakking on and on and on. So we know that the skill, the ability, the physical functions are there. But something I think maybe in his frontal lobe is keeping him from being able to use it during the daytime. So um, the other thing I was interested in is, is part of your practice, you also do something called timeline therapy. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, timeline therapy is based on the concept that your subconscious mind remembers things that happened a long time ago that may have you stuck today. I had one client who was terribly jealous and fearful of being abandoned. And what I found out when we went back in time through timeline therapy, that her mother had told her when she was five that she was unlovable and would never be loved. That's sad. And so that morphed into a fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to people with dementia and they want to be able to remember to do things that they used to be able to do, sometimes I can help them access that memory. And you know what we know about, especially in Alzheimer's type dementia, is that is the long-term memory that is the last to um, be lost. And particularly, you know, memories that um, are emotionally charged are particularly strong. And so, you know, we see that and often what get labeled as behaviors in this adult and yet to understand some of the things that occurred that might be leading to this behavior, if we can understand it. Um, we can often address it in a much more proactive and compassionate way because we're really meeting the emotional memory, right? It's an emotional exactly. memory. And emotional memory remains very strong in people. So, Carol, so, can I can yeah. I ask, after you had your incident with the, with, with the encephalitis, how long was it after that before you started to kind of think about the gifts that might give you to, you know, to be able to empathize it, it with It was actually patients? several years because at the time I was an engineer. Uh-huh. And I had to go back to engineering. But during that time, I was thinking, you know, I really want to understand people in the brain and how people think and how they get stuck better. So I sold my house in Ahwatukee, moved to Tucson, entered U of A and the psych department. Unfortunately, I'm also a very poor money manager. So in my junior year in the dean's list, doing really, really well, I ran out of money and had to go back to engineering. Oh. But I knew that when I retired, <laughs> I, was going, there. <laughs> I was going to work with people and help them understand themselves and each other. So lucky to have you doing that, too, because I think, as you said, you have personal experience and you can relate to these people. And a lot of us that haven't gotten to that point, because I always go back to being temporally able you know, any one of us could have, you know, dementia at any time, you know. So it's one of those things where you can relate to them, you can help them understand things. And what what I was interested in with you is like, I think us as caregivers, sometimes we're a little rough on the people that we care for. And so it's having us like, explain to me, like, how do you work with caregivers and the, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm medical, but I say no, patients, I caregivers and yeah. patients. And I always go back to the patient word and I apologize. But, you know, to be able to connect with each other and be patient with each other and understand that there's a different reality that's going on right now. There, there are so many stories I could tell about that. No, tell us a couple. Uh, one is my sister stays with people in their dying times. And she had a, she had a client who in the middle of Los Angeles with dementia got up. And she said, John, where are you going? He said, I'm going to milk the cows. So smart kid, she says, I've already milked the cows. You can go back to bed. And he said, okay. So you get into their reality and make it okay for them to do what's best for them at that time. Great story. 
Do you have another one for us? Yes, I had a client whose caregiver was being very impatient. And he was in our meeting with just him. He was telling me that he wanted to do some things. I mean, he was a very responsible, organized person with high level of achievement. Mm -hmm. And now he, he couldn't even pour his own coffee. Wow. Okay. So what we talked about was that he could do pieces of the whole process mm -hmm. and that he could work that out with his caregiver, which pieces he could do. And so that's how they kind of negotiate that. One day at a time, right? You Sometimes bet. one hour at a time. Hey, Ben, I want to get into a little bit more of your research. It's sure. so cool to, to talk to these ladies. But one of the things you've talked about is like the big data. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that means. Big data. So it's kind of one of those, it's kind of one of those um, overloaded terms now. The, this, really what it means in the context of what I do, we've reached a point where there's a certain level beyond which you know, we don't seem to be able to get in the treatment of uh, a lot of different complex and mm -hmm. common diseases where you know, things aren't as close to a cure as what we might like. So right. I remember working as a clinician, really enjoying you know, patient interaction, uh, but realizing just for the majority of diseases you know, or, or medical issues that people were coming in for, really the best possible outcome following successful treatment was, was still there's a, still a pretty stark difference between that and what it is you'd want to be able to offer a patient mm -hmm. if you could. And even if a clinician was doing their very best and, you know, do, doing their best to adopt all the latest uh, kind of evidence-based standards and practices, really there was, there was kind of a high tide mark beyond which it was, was, was difficult to get beyond. And I think kind of the zeitgeist has been changing more and more in genetics and genomics as we kind of embracing a, a complexity-based model which which um where we where we kind of embrace the complexity that we know is at the heart of a given disease mm -hmm. you know so a disease like schizophrenia for instance is probably it's at least hundreds it's probably thousands of different genes that harbor risk associated variants and so it's no so it's not just a single gene it's, it's not just a single insult that can give someone a complex disease like schizophrenia and it's the same with alzheimer's disease so what we're realizing more and more is that we really need to be able to look across these millions of different dimensions of data, you know, right down from the molecular level and the cellular level, looking at what the genes and genetics are doing and the, the proteins, right through to the clinical level, through to the lab pathology tests, mm -hmm. through to, you know, the electronic health records, neuroimaging, anything we can quantify that tells us something useful about, you know, uh, about someone's life and their kind of their, their disease state. We need to be able to look across all of these different dimensions of data. And it's really only by looking across all of these dimensions that we can have an unbiased way of learning the important associations between you know, genes and proteins and networks and kind of different clinical, you know, clinical aspects of the disease that we really want to be able to treat. And so big data is, big data is part of the story there, but it's also, I think, becoming increasingly important to have what's called deep data. And so that's, that's the idea that you know, so why you need to be looking across big populations of people from different, you know, from different uh, ethnic backgrounds, from different uh, environments and, you know, different exposure levels. You also, for a given individual, you also want to be profiling across all of these dimensions at once. Mm -hmm. And that, that lets you do things that we've never been able to do before. That lets us build networks of associations that, um, that really powers us to be able to find non-obvious things. For instance, you know, what, what is... 
what is the network or the cell type that might be driving nearby neighboring cells into, into a pathological state. It's only by having all of these different dimensions available in these huge data sets that, that we're kind of best powered to be able to, to, to pull out these sorts of relationships. So big da- data and deep data are kind of necessary parts of what we need to do. But then in tandem with that, we also need, at the moment, we're kind of blessed with abundant computational power. So we need, we need uh, hardware and we need people that are able to kind of mesh all this stuff together and splice together these different data sets and you know, unify and combine them so that people can kind of interrogate them and pull out useful lessons. The commonalities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so can I ask, how do you then interact with uh, kind of the end clinician user or the pharmaceutical company or who mm-hmm. really becomes your customer, if you will? Because it's, wow, it's just so kind of overwhelming to think about big data sets yeah, and deep exactly. data. It's like, wow, I, I missed the bus somewhere. All of this, <laughs> and you know cool. all this is happening in Tempe. All of this is all in Tempe. Well, I kind of fell sideways into it. It was, it was no grand design on my part. Um, I, I kind of slipped sideways into bioinformatics after clinical medicine. So the devil's really in the details as to, you know, um, as to how you best leverage the data to serve all these different, mm-hmm. these different ends. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes when we're doing this kind of work, so the outcome from all of this is, you know, we're, we're, always, we're always looking to improve our understanding in being able to make better predictions as to, you know, who's going to get the disease and if they get the disease, how it's going to progress and really trying to distill it down to its essential elements mm-hmm. and trying to understand what are all the moving parts in this. And from that, then the idea, the goal or the hope on a good day is that you'll be able to find the strategically important parts that you can then leverage. And so, you know, where you might want to then craft a, a particular medical therapy around right. or base a biomarker around. You know, so in those cases, it might be that there's a novel drug target that's just screaming out to be tested. And so, you know, we're fortunate at the ASU banner NDRC. We're also, in, it's not just, not just data science people. There's, it's embedded in a much bigger ecosystem of really talented AD biologists that they work on human data, they work on mouse data and other sorts of AD model data. And, and so we've, we've got access to all sorts of really talented uh, experimentalists and, and clinical collaborators that can then go and validate things because the data science by itself is, is a dead end. It's really useful to the extent that it can help us place a better bet. And so for that, we need, we need experimentalists and clinicians. You know, that's really great. And you think about the city of Tempe because of uh, Mark Mitchell's efforts three years ago, decided to launch dementia-friendly city. Then you have people like Carol here, who's given a devotion to her practice to help people with dementia. And a lot of us didn't even know what you were doing. <laughs> we, we had no idea what you were doing. And, and, and thank you for bringing it down to like a little bit of a simpler level for that, those of us, because, you know, it's like, wow. And it's exciting for me because as a clinician, I, I honestly believe that diagnosing patients with dementia and Alzheimer's is one of the most difficult conversations to ever have. And a lot of times someone will come in to me and basically I'm looking for everything else. I'm looking for vitamin deficiencies. I'm looking for other diagnoses. And then finally, after, you know, I punt them a lot of times, the neurologist, we do a lot of testing, we do MRIs and stuff like that. We tell the family we have dementia, early state Alzheimer's. And so for families to know that there's programs in Tempe, that's pretty amazing. I, I want to know, are more cities 
like gravitating towards the Tempe model? Because I do call it a model because you guys are actually, Tempe is actually first. Isn't that correct? Right. First and kind of only. Although uh, the little city of Safford has been right. doing some work because, Safford. Of, <laughs> yeah, because of uh, a very dedicated caregiver who took care of his mom. But yes, we've had lots of visitors. Um, Scottsdale, for example, came and visited. And what they ended up doing is created what they call a memory lounge. And it's in partnership with the Scottsdale Center for the Arts. And so it's the fourth Thursday of the month. They gather from 1 to 2.30, care partners and people living with dementia, and feature an artist and uh, do some exploration. And actually, on April 27th, they are going to display the collage that the partners and oh, people great. with dementia have been uh, working on. Sun Lakes is soon going to be launching a memory cafe. And the Jewish Community Center in Phoenix launched a once a month memory cafe. So it's it's catching on. But I think, you know, beyond the memory cafe, we do monthly lectures. We've been having this Dementia Friends program. We've created a strategic plan to embed the program within the city senior services. So I think our 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 reach is a little bit greater because we've been at it a little bit right. longer, but there's tremendous interest. And and we're here to to learn and share lessons and, uh, you know, coach and, and guide and cheerlead other cities to That's do this great. because the need is great. And, you know, we get to see the benefit of people uh, living life and feeling normal and having fun and meeting new friends. And because uh, we know one of the things is that families often wait too long to get help and they wait to the point where they're so frazzled and they're not giving the kind of care that they want to, not because they don't desire to, it's because they're so run down and frazzled. And so I think this this model provides us to be much more proactive and um, provide better skills and education earlier in the con- in the context of the illness. Now, I'll say though, recently for engagement program, one of our professionals didn't end up showing up on that particular day, and we have two people living with early stage Alzheimer's disease. One, a gentleman who uh, is older, and one is a woman with young onset. In fact, she was in graduate school when she got diagnosed. And um, they actually facilitated an incredible discussion among those living with dementia about how they're doing and how they're living. And so, um, you know, it's interesting that that you mentioned about the bad news of giving the diagnosis. And yet, in my experience and our work at Banner Alzheimer's Institute, where we give this diagnosis daily, routinely, (laughs) is there's a real sense of empowerment that can happen too, right? If we provide the counseling and say, much like any other chronic condition, it's not good news to hear you have diabetes or you have cancer, something that's going to maybe be with you the rest of your life. But if you learn new skills to cope with it and and you know how to get the kind of help and you can get connected to others, there's incredible... um, But that's the key, the connection. And some doctors will just say, yeah, you have Alzheimer's. Here's some medicine. But these people give you the information at the same time, the resources that are available, so they don't have to continue to feel lost and overwhelmed. That's why I think there needs to be like a national effort on this, because you're hitting families and caregivers. And that's what I love, because I feel like the caregivers a lot of times are misunderstood as well. And so, you know, also integrative medicine, doing the types of things that you do and working with us allopathic practitioners and taking the best of all worlds and us to work together for best case scenario, best quality of life that we can absolutely offer. Yeah. 
So, Ben, go ahead. You're going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, Janet, I was interested in these educational sessions you describe. And I wonder if, have you thought about recording them or do, do you record them? I wonder that they might be valuable to folks living outside of Arizona. So recording the programs at the Memory Cafe? Yeah, that's uh, right. That, that we've not done, uh, you know, largely because of a lot of confidentiality sure. issues and you have to consent people to see if they'd be willing to do that. Uh, but certainly um, through Banner Alzheimer's Institute, we have recorded many things and put mm-hmm. things online to be of resources to family members who can't get away because they don't have family or friends who can come in and, and stay with their person. And so, you know, um, we've cr- tried to create all kinds of modalities to reach, especially family members. I will say that within Maricopa County, our arts community has been amazing in terms of the work that they've been doing Um trying to connect people and partners to art. So beyond the Scottsdale Center for the Arts, we've had the Phoenix Art Museum have an arts engagement program now for 12 years. Actually, it runs twice a year, and they now have, I think, close to 60 couples that Oh, that's meet, really and it's great. a docent-led program. And we did the original study on it. Outcomes were phenomenal. The Phoenix Symphony has had a program for people with dementia and their partners uh, with the Coffee Classic Series. The Mesa Arts Center started a, a wonderful program two years ago, and both for people with dementia. And they've started uh, an arts program, particularly for caregivers, because you know caregivers' health, and typically even in a classic counseling session, Mm -hmm. we kind of say at the end of this, oh, and caregiver, please remember to take care of yourself. (laughs) What does that say? Versus, um, well, what does that look like? And so, and even Tempe Center for the Arts has some amazing things they're doing. So our arts community has been really very robust in its response and people love it. I often say to my physician colleagues, you know, if your drugs worked as good as art did, we'd be a whole lot further along. Well, that's why it's got to be integrated. So so it really speaks, I think, to other modalities beyond, you know, and I don't want to minimize the current therapies because for some, they can have a, a modest improvement in mood and, and behavior. But beyond that, uh, the use of music and improv and theater and dance and uh, it, uh, the arts well, are phenomenal. And the other thing is, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? That's for sure. Absolutely. There's a process for helping to bring back memory called spaced retrieval mm-hmm. developed by the Montessori people. And so you have person memorize. What we did was put it on a whiteboard, the address for the person, so they could read it because they could still see and they could still identify numbers and letters. And so we went through the numbers and the letters and saying this address. I'll use my address. Shall I use my address? Oh, why not? Make one up. Two one one eight East Center Lane. You say it. Two one one eight East Center. We point to each letter, and we do that like ten times just to start. And then we have a space where nothing happens. We maybe chat about coffee or something. And then we go back to it to see if they can remember. Okay. And if they do, then we do it again and leave a larger space between the next time mm-hmm. and keep increasing the space between times. And that helps them because that's how we remember people's names when we first meet, don't we? Exactly. We the name. Right. And, so you it's, know, it's, and we've found some really interesting work with space retrieval around things like people who... Um, 
want their purse, right? And when they can't find their purse, they think someone's stolen their purse, right? So now we're talking about paranoia, right? We label right. it, which right. I hate, which then assumes you're going to get a drug. And that, whereas the space <laughs> retrieval can be really helpful is helping the caregiver understand, put the purse in a certain place. And then when the person says, where is my purse? You gently say your purse is in the top drawer and the person goes to the top drawer and they look at it. So as you repeat, because it's really procedural memory that we're working mm-hmm. on, it can really be helpful in minimizing the anxiety that these individuals who are living with dementia have. So beyond, you know, there's a point at which certain things don't matter, but the thing that a person perseverates on, sometimes space retrieval can be a method um, that can be quite helpful to alleviate the anxiety of that person and, boy, minimize the frustration of the right. caregiver who's saying, your purse is in the top drawer, yeah. right? Oh, and the body <laughs> language so tired. The body language and the facial right. expressions are telling them, I've done yeah. something bad. What did I do? Yeah. yeah. Right. Why don't you like me anymore? Yeah. yeah. So you're right. That yeah. body language <laughs> is really important. So... Ben, when you hear all this, does that make you want to go back to work? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, do you mean to clinical work or to... <laughs> that, well, to both. <laughs> yeah. I, let's, let's keep digging for cures and, right. and relationships between all this and then also clinical work. Come on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I do get itchy for, you know, this, 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 is, this is a high priority for myself and many people. I was, you know, I've been at a lot of meetings lately and it's actually really heartening just what a powerhouse Arizona is actually in terms of national and international Alzheimer's disease research. I, I, didn't really, I, didn't, I don't think I properly appreciated it until I was here. Just the, the Arizona Alzheimer's Consortium mm-hmm. is just, just a really unusual model for collaboration within a state in the, in the U.S. I don't think there's anything else like it around, around the place. And it's, it's been really heartening to see how many really talented, devoted, committed scientists are all working their butt off to you know, to, to find a cure. And I think that model I was sharing with Ben earlier, you know, Dr. Rick Ryman, who has started this consortium and has been brilliant about crafting these relationships, really served as a model, I think, for me. And and and, and the, certainly the mayor's um, uh, perspective, too, is how do we create this community partnership? And so we've had, you know, Tempe Adult Daycare come and, and assist us with programmings. We've had um, several home care agencies come and provide assistance. We have a retired judge from the city of Tempe who works as a greeter. So she serves as a familiar face. So it's been a a wonderful opportunity where people bring um, the talents and the resources they have to um, avail themselves to people living with this condition and their family members, you know, so these collaborations are fabulous, aren't they? When, when you're not competing, you're there for a similar purpose. Yours is about finding solutions that are going to work uh, more effectively in the future. And ours are about finding solutions that help our community members feel welcomed and accepted. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is maybe one of the, one of the indirect benefits of working in an area like this. There's no need to be competitive. Mm-hmm. There's, plenty of, there's plenty of work to be done and we don't need to be like scrabbling over problems. <laughs> well, collaboration is what it's all about. And yeah. it's amazing how you get you know, three people in a room that have such various backgrounds, but there's a huge connection going on right here. Right, Carol? Absolutely. I decided to go to one of the daycare places to see what that was like for my clients. And the one I went to was really, I don't know if it's extraordinary. I just say extraordinary because I don't know any better. But they had people around a very large table. And the first thing that they did was play bingo. And the people who couldn't 
understand what was going on were generally sitting with somebody with less developed Alzheimer's and they were helping each other. Sorry. And then and then Fabulous. we had and then we had the balloon <laughs> toss around everybody sitting in chairs around a table in a different area throwing this giant balloon. Right on. And it's just ama- yeah. it was amazing to me how strong and strong fast their reflexes were mm-hmm. when they have trouble just reaching for a bottle. But that balloon came at them and man they were at it. <laughs> yeah. They were excited about it. Yeah. Or they didn't want their glasses broken. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> hey, so so Carol, give us some final words of um What's your big take-home message that you'd like people to know and, and about your business and how people can reach out to you? I think one of the most important things is to know that you can live well with dementia. Mm-hmm. There are resources all over the place, all over the city. There's training for caregivers to understand how to deal with the different behaviors that they're, that they're seeing. What I love is that when I when I get my... I have a group of people with early Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and they help each other. They help each other understand what's going on. They help each other tell stories. There was one time when someone new was in the group and I hadn't been introduced to him, but one of the other people said, Hey, over here is a new guy, (laughs) you know, so have him talk. So that's what we do. Yeah. So just having fun, enjoying each other's company, respecting each other's personhood and keeping and using what you've got at any particular ability. Well said. Hey, Ben, how about you? I would encourage people to be excited and optimistic for, you know, for the future of Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. I think, I think the time at the moment is, is really unique, actually. There's, there's, I think, three main things that are working together that kind of make me optimistic. And one of them is you know, the availability of data that we were talking about before. And the second is you know, the availability and the abundance of computing computational power and computational approaches to integrate all all sorts of data. I think maybe the most important factor is just there's a colossal collective will Mm -hmm. to put the disease behind Mm -hmm. us. Um, And that's that's at the level of uh, patient support groups, patients themselves, advocacy groups, caregivers. There's also a huge scientific will. There's just a really encouraging number of just very dedicated, talented scientists all, all committed to to, to finding a cure. And then also importantly, there's huge political will. Right. And so one of the one of the really encouraging things I think is that Alzheimer's disease funding is on the rise at the moment. And so this year the NIH is slated to to invest uh, one point eight billion dollars in wow. Alzheimer's disease research. And That's this great. is up by four hundred million dollars. Right on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and so, you know, the, these three things together I think is creating and will continue to create you know, these three things, they all kind of catalyze one mm-hmm. to the other. And I think it's making an environment where innovation is encouraged and it makes me optimistic. We're very appreciative of the research that you're doing. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Jan? Yeah, so I, you know, I just think there's reasons to be hopeful too for people living with the condition and their families, as Carol has said. I think that Tempe serves as a model community in our in our state to show what a city can do in bringing people together who are committed to helping people live well. I agree 
But Carol, I think that's an incredibly important thing that we should look forward to. And, you know, on behalf of that, I would say that um, next uh, Saturday, April 7th, uh, Dementia Friendly Tempe is, is celebrating our third annual summit. And um, this is focused particularly on caregivers and uh, called Tools for uh, Building Resilience. And again, a collaborative. We have uh, Dr. Mary Beth Gallagher with Hospice of the Valley, Susie Favaro with Banner Alzheimer's Institute, looking at mindfulness and looking at a, a very common type of loss that caregivers often don't recognize. And when they do, what are you going to do about it? We have partners sharing their story with people with early stage illness also going to talk about their experience. And then again, a lot of um, wonderful organizations coming to share resources so families know how to get connected and free respite care for people who are living with dementia. So I hope it's free. It's from 10 to 12 and people can visit the uh, website at uh, tempe.gov forward slash DFT. So we hope that um, if you can't make it, you look up the website anyways, you think about joining our memory cafe or coming to one of our lectures or getting involved and getting involved in prevention research that is happening abundantly here in Arizona. Aren't we lucky? We're very lucky. We live in such an amazing place. Go Tempe. It makes you proud to be a a Tempe resident and work in Tempe. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to wrap it up at this point. I want to tell you what a pleasure it was to have the three of you on the show. Thank you. Uh, what a pleasure. I've learned so much today and I'm looking forward to learning more and watching you guys. Anyway, this is Barb Regis, Best of Health. I can be found at www.bestofhealthradio.com with all of our shows. We're sponsored by Ask the PA. What a pleasure. And remember, it's your health, it's your business. Have a great evening and until next time, thanks. Thank you.